Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the third of four Nathan Lectures by Mr. Ravi Menon, our ninth SR Nathan Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Mr. Menon will be delivering his third lecture titled An Inclusive Society. Following his lecture, Mr. Menon will take questions from the audience in the Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Ms. Tramway Hong, Associate Editor of The Straits Times. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto the IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. At the end of the lecture, there will be a QR code and a link in the Facebook comment box, which you can scan or click on to submit your feedback. So without further ado, I would like to invite Mr. Ravi Menon to begin his third lecture, An Inclusive Society. Mr. Menon, please. Good afternoon. Social inclusion is close to the hearts of many people in Singapore. I've received many comments and questions following my two lectures in the last two weeks. Almost all were on the issues of inequality and inclusion. Last week, I asked a few people for ideas for this current lecture on an inclusive society. All of them replied with long emails. One Singaporean lady, whom I've not even met before, sent me a 14-page letter. I'm thankful and overwhelmed for their feedback and ideas, but more importantly, that they care deeply to make Singapore a more inclusive society. Inequality and inclusion are related but distinct. A perfectly equal society is neither feasible nor desirable. Inequality of outcomes reflects inequality of ability and effort and luck. An equal society will not be seen as just or fair by most people. I believe what most of us want instinctively is an inclusive society. One that provides broadly equal opportunity for all to move up in life. One that leaves no one behind. One that treats all with dignity and respect. In short, one that makes everyone feel included. Or as Martin Sandbo from the Financial Times puts it, to create an economy of belonging, where the markets work for everyone. Of course, a highly unequal society is unlikely to be inclusive. But rather than try to make society more equal, it might be better to focus on the tangible elements that make it more inclusive. In my first lecture, I said inequality becomes socially unacceptable and economically inefficient when it leads to increased poverty, middle-class stagnation, a growing wealth gap, or reduced social mobility. So let me start today's lecture with a quick overview of how Singapore fares on these four primarily economic dimensions of inclusion. Low-wage workers, median wage growth, wealth gap, and social mobility. 
I fully recognize that there are many other aspects of social inclusion, but I will focus on just these four. But first, let's, let me briefly deal with the ubiquitous Gini coefficient and get it out of the way. There is much ado about the Gini coefficient, but I think it's really not the best lens to view the issue of social inclusion. Uh, to recap, the Gini coefficient measures the extent to which the Lorenz curve, which plots the percentage of income earned by X percent of the population, deviates from a 45-degree line. In short, a Gini coefficient of zero implies perfect equality. A coefficient of one implies perfect inequality. At 0.46, Singapore has a higher Gini coefficient compared to most countries. The Nordic countries are at around 0.27. The UK is at 0.35. China at 0.39. United States, 0.41. Uh, this is not surprising because cities tend to have higher Gini coefficients, and we are a global city at that. New York has a Gini coefficient of 0.51, Paris 0.53, and Hong Kong 0.54. But unlike these cities, Singapore is also a country, and a country cannot afford to have such high inequality. But the Gini coefficient is highly sensitive to observations in the extreme upper and lower ends of the income distribution. A small number of extremely high income earners can significantly affect the Gini coefficient without any change in the rest of the distribution. For example, if there were 10 of us in a room with varying income levels, we can compute a Gini coefficient to measure the degree of income inequality among us. But if Roger Federer or Cristiano Ronaldo walked into the room, the Gini coefficient would immediately rise, indicating greater inequality. Yet nothing has really changed among the original 10 of us in the room. So interdecile income ratios are likely to give us a more meaningful perspective of income distribution. For example, looking at the ratio of the income of those between the 90th 80th and 90th percentile to those between 0 and 10th percentile gets rid of the outlier effects and yet tells us how the top incomes and bottom incomes are faring relative to one another. In 2000, the average monthly household income from work per household member at the 90th percentile was 18 times that of the household at the 10th percentile. Now, that ratio went up to 26 times over 2008 to 2012, before easing slightly to around 24 times in more recent years. But if you look at the ratio of the household income per member at the 80th percentile rather than the 90th percentile, the 80th percentile to that of the 10th percentile, we see a gentler increase from about 9 times in 2000 to about 11 times in 2005, and actually staying fairly stable at around that level till now. So that's quite remarkable. So income inequality has obviously worsened in both the decile comparisons. But what is interesting is that while the gap between the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile has widened considerably over the last 20 years, the gap between the 80th percentile and 10th percentile household 
has increased only slightly and actually has been roughly stable for the last 15 years. This underscores what I said earlier about the Roger Federer effect. The sharp increase in income at the very top make the measured income inequality, according to the Gini, worse than is the case for the majority of the population. The Gini coefficient, as you can see from the chart, tracks the P90-P10 ratio more closely. It shows a marked worsening over the 2000s and a slight improvement from about 2012 onwards. Let me now come back to how Singapore fares on the four aspects of an inclusive economy. Little poverty, decent median wage growth, stable wealth gap, and social mobility. How are we faring? There is very little absolute poverty in Singapore. So it makes more sense to focus on low-wage workers. Now we could look at the wage gap between those at the lower deciles of income distribution and the median. In 2001, the wage of the worker at the 20th percentile was 58% of the median wage. This P20, P50 ratio deteriorated over the following 10 years to reach a low of 50% in 2012. And with the government deploying a range of policy tools such as tighter quotas and higher levies on foreign work permit holders, the P20, P50 ratio has improved in recent years, reaching 54% in 2019, uh, before dipping to 52% last year as the COVID-19 recession hit lower-income workers harder. But even at the recent peak of 54% in 2019, we are still below the level 20 years ago. Singapore's P20, P50 ratio looks low compared to the OECD countries. The OECD convention is to publish the P10 to P50 ratio. Now this ratio, P10 to 50, P50, ranges from 50% in the United States to 74% in Sweden, with most countries in the 60 to 70% range. Singapore's P20, P50 ratio at 54% is already lower than the P10, P50 ratio in many OECD countries. This is because countries like the UK, the US, South Korea have national minimum wages, and others like Norway and Sweden have strong industry-led minimum wage regulations. Singapore's experience on median wages, however, has not been bad. As I mentioned in my first lecture, real median wages increased by an average 2.6% per annum over 2011 to 2020, higher than the 1.2% per annum during the earlier decade 2001 to 2010. The stronger real median wage growth during 2010 to 2020 was underpinned by good GDP growth. Growth was relatively broad-based across sectors during 2010 to 2015, followed by strong growth in labour productivity during 2015 to 2020. The tightening of foreign worker policies through the decade led to strong demand for resident labour, particularly in domestic-oriented service sectors. And the transition from labor-intensive production to higher value-added activities in manufacturing, coupled with strong growth in high-income services, service sectors like finance and insurance and ICT, also helped support healthy median wage growth. And falling inflation rates from 2013 boosted real wage, real, uh, boosted wage growth in real terms. 
statistics from almost all nations that measure wealth in their household surveys indicate that it is becoming increasingly concentrated. The widening wealth gap has historically been driven strongly by property investments. Those with higher incomes can afford larger investments in real estate and the substantial value appreciation they enjoy over time is not available to those with lower incomes and smaller outlays for housing. Singapore does not have good data on wealth, but it would appear that to some extent, this property-induced increase in wealth inequality is also happening here. The higher income groups are likely to have grown their wealth proportionately faster than the lower income groups, given the boom in the private residential market and multiple property purchases by the rich. However, Singapore's heavy subsidization of public housing and the high rate of home ownership would have mitigated some of the divergence in housing wealth. In very few countries do most citizens have the opportunity to enjoy capital appreciation in housing assets as we do in Singapore. But if price increases in the private housing market consistently outstrip that in public housing, then wealth inequality will worsen over time even if not to the same extent as in many other countries. To promote an inclusive society, it might make sense to shift the balance in our tax structure away from taxing income towards taxing wealth. Singapore's wealth taxation has indeed become more significant and progressive over the last 10 years. There is probably room to go further in that direction. A wealth tax could take the form of either a property gains tax or an inheritance tax. But taxing wealth has not worked well in many countries. In 1990, 12 European countries levied an annual tax on net wealth. By 2018, 8 out of the 12 countries had abandoned the wealth tax, citing high administrative cost, risk of capital flight, and ironically, failure to meet redistributive goals. Now, this is not necessarily a reason for not imposing a wealth tax, but it's a strong caution that designing a good wealth tax is not a trivial exercise. Income mobility, the ability to change one's economic status, is a crucial component of an inclusive society. Singapore is not doing too badly in terms of income mobility across generations. According to a 2015 study by the Ministry of Finance, the percentage of young Singaporeans in their 30s with parents in the lowest income quintile when they were growing up, who have moved up to the top quintile of income earners as adults, was 14%. This is higher than even countries such as Canada and Denmark which have more equitable income distributions. But it is going to get more difficult over time to sustain this kind of mobility. Our positive intergenerational income mobility situation essentially reflects earlier waves of mobility, the 1980s and 1990s, when these cohorts grew up, were a period of rapid economic growth, accompanied by a significant expansion in education, job opportunities. Singaporeans who came of age during this period enjoyed opportunities that their parents did not, and so they did better. The degree of mobility in society today will only be discernible 
later. The key to maintain, the key is to maintain as level a playing field as possible for younger Singaporeans, especially early in life. Of some concern is that despite all the efforts, the proportion of children from lower income households enrolling in preschool is much lower than for higher income households. Given how keen competition is in Singapore and how hard parents in higher income households work to give their children a head start, as a society, we must be relentless in making sure that children from less advantaged families have every opportunity to build up their capabilities and confidence to do well in school and subsequently in life. Singapore's social inclusion agenda must be centred on jobs and wages. A job gives a sense of fulfilment and self-worth. Doing a meaningful job, earning a decent wage, supporting one's family and contributing to society are critically important for a sense of inclusion. Now, those who stay at home to raise their children or look after their aged parents are also doing meaningful work and have a sense of inclusion. Fundamental to a job-centred inclusion model is a labour market that delivers more equal outcomes, more diverse opportunities catering to different inclinations and abilities, pathways for those at the bottom of the income distribution to upgrade themselves, and springboards to help those who fall to bounce back. Redistribution through taxes and transfers also have an important role in fostering inclusion, but it is secondary to a labour market-centred model of inclusion. A job-centred social inclusion agenda must aim to raise the wages of low-wage workers. It must sustain median wage growth and it must promote income mobility. We cannot rely on any single measure to achieve all this. We need to deploy a range of tools. And such a multifaceted agenda also calls for a creative synthesis of prescriptions from across the ideological spectrum. We need highly flexible and competitive labour markets, coupled with active labour market policies to share risk and responsibility among workers, employers and the state. We need a comprehensive architecture to enhance inclusion through jobs and wages. Safety nets to provide a basic level of support. Trampolines to help people bounce back if they fall. And escalators to help people move up along progressively higher wages. Let us imagine a job and wage architecture that comprises two safety nets, one trampoline, and four escalators. The two, escal the two safety nets are minimum wage and workfare income supplement. The trampoline is re-employment support. The four escalators are progressive wages, reclaimed jobs, professionalized jobs, and lifelong learning. Most of these tools already exist, and what is new builds on the existing architecture which has served Singaporeans reasonably well so far. The first safety net, a most basic one, minimum wage. Proponents of a minimum wage argue that it will help uplift low-wage workers and reduce income inequality. Its opponents maintain that it will displace low-wage workers and create more unemployment. 
I think both the benefits and costs are somewhat overstated and that we, we might want to seriously study a modest minimum wage. It is not a straightforward issue. I have changed my mind, my view of the minimum wage three times over the last 35 years, from no to yes, then to no again, and now yes. Let me explain. There is now a large body of empirical evidence across countries that finds zero or minimal adverse effects on employment from an increase in the minimum wage. In a recent wide-ranging survey of the empirical literature, the British economist Alan Manning describes the employment effect of minimum wages as elusive or hard to find. The increase in the wage bill arising from a minimum wage is mostly passed through to higher prices and partly absorbed in profit margins. And this varies across sectors and industries. I mean, there's no free lunch. A different way to pose the question might be this. Instead of asking whether we should have a minimum wage, why not ask at what level might we set it at? Years ago, I asked an economist from the Asian Development Bank if a minimum wage was a good idea. And he said, and I quote, it depends on where you set it. So let us imagine a minimum wage of, say, $1,200 per month. The key question then is, what are the likely effects on wages, employment, and prices in different industries? What is the wage distribution of workers earning below the 1200 level? If most of them are bunched close to $1,200, there is a good chance the positive wage effect of pushing them above could be sizable, while the negative employment effect is trivial. But if most of these workers are well below $1,200, there is a chance that many of them may become unemployed. Then the question is, is there scope to move them to other jobs? I should add, though, that the benefits of a minimum wage should not be exaggerated. Some well-meaning proponents of the minimum wage in Singapore view it as a means to reduce income inequality. I do not think that a minimum wage at the kinds of levels that are being talked about will make a discernible dent in income inequality. If we do have a minimum wage, we must be clear of its rationale. It is to help lift the wages of those at the bottom of the income distribution. A minimum wage also signifies a societal value that no one should be paid less than this amount for his or her labor. It is not unlike setting minimum standards for workplace safety and humane conditions of work. For raising the wage prospects of the majority of our low-wage workers, the sector-based progressive wage model is more effective than a national minimum wage. Why then have a minimum wage? Well, it is not clear whether the progressive wage model can be extended to all occupations below the 30th percentile. How long will it take? And whether it will work as well? The minimum wage and progressive wage need not be alternatives. They could be complements. Now, if a national minimum wage is seen as too big a step, we could more decisively use the Local Qualifying Salary, or LQS, as a de facto minimum wage. Today, the LQS already serves as a de facto minimum wage for Singaporeans working in firms that bring in a large number of foreign workers. 
This is how it works. Firms that bring in foreign workers are subject to a dependency ratio ceiling, or DRC, that sets a limit on the number of foreign workers they can bring in relative to their resident workers. The DRC in the service sector is 35%. In other words, up to 35% of the firm's total workforce can be foreign workers. Now, the LQS is the minimum wage that must be paid to resident workers so that these resident workers can count towards the firm's total workforce for purposes of computing the number of foreign workers the firm can employ within the DRC, the ceiling. Firms must thus pay enough local workers, at least the LQS, in order to build up their quota for foreign workers that they can employ, which is capped by the DRC. Now, we could consider steadily increasing the LQS over time. The LQS is currently $1,400. For the last few years, it has been going up by $100 every year. We could continue doing so, or we could even step up the increases. Now, any, an increase in the LQS is likely to have positive wage effects for low-wage workers. A study by the Monetary Authority of Singapore has found that an increase in the LQS raises the effective minimum wage for resident workers in a good proportion of firms in the services sector, with positive effects on wages among resident workers in the lower half of the wage distribution. An increase in the LQS has some negative effects on employment, but the negative effect is greater on the foreign employment than on resident employment. One drawback of using the LQS as a de facto minimum wage is that firms that are not yet hitting their dependency ratio ceiling would not need to pay the marginal resident worker the LQS. But as long as these firms need to hire foreigners at all, they would still have to pay some of their locals the LQS. And it would make sense for them to extend this wage to the other locals doing the same job for the sake of parity. For any form of minimum wage to work, we would need to simultaneously raise the price of foreign workers relative to locals. Well, one way to do it is to raise the foreign worker levies. But the levy increase could simply be passed down to the foreign worker in, in terms of wage reductions, leading to a reduction in labour quality. So these are not straightforward issues. They need careful study. My own sense is that some kind of wage flaw, either through a formal minimum wage or using the LQS as an active proxy, may need to be part of the overall wage architecture for a more inclusive economy. The second safety net in our jobs and wage architecture, which we already have, is the Workfare Income Supplement, the WIS. The WIS tops up the salaries of workers up to the 30th percentile. It is paid in cash to supplement their take-home pay and as top-ups to their central provident fund accounts to boost their retirement savings. The key innovation in workfare is that it provides a framework to increase support for low-wage workers without increasing dependency. It was born out of the conviction that the best way to help low-wage workers and unemployed workers was not through expanding the welfare system, but to make the work system more rewarding, to encourage low-wage workers to stay in work and to encourage the unemployed to seek work. Unlike receiving transfers, 
being paid higher wages for work maintains one's sense of dignity in the job. And indeed, the WIS has been a largely successful program. WIS top-ups can comprise up to an extra 30% of a worker's monthly income. Since its inception in 2007, more than 300,000 workers have been receiving WIS benefits each year. Enhancements to the WIS in 2020 are estimated to have benefited close to 440,000 Singaporeans. A 2014 study by the Ministry of Trade and Industry found that the WIS was effective in incentivizing less educated Singaporeans, particularly in the older age groups, to enter and stay in the workforce. Besides safety nets, we need a trampoline <clears throat> to help workers bounce back from falls, specifically transitional support for re-employment. In my first lecture, I mentioned how the third horseman technology was changing the nature of our jobs. Dealing with this successfully requires a more dynamic and flexible labor market characterized by a high degree of job destruction, creation, and mobility. Such a dynamic labor market will require more security for workers than we currently have. This means some form of temporary unemployment benefit or insurance to ease the transition of workers from redundant jobs to skills training before they can take on new jobs. Denmark is an off-sited example how, of how a minimum level of income security can promote a flexible and dynamic labour market. We need meaningful labour mobility, which means identifying and training for jobs that suit our abilities and aptitudes, rather than taking the first job that comes along. Today, we have a small group of young serial job switchers with poor wage outcomes. Now, we have a larger group of older workers at risk of redundancy as automation becomes more pervasive, and they would need to move to new jobs. But both groups will need time, facilitation, and financial resources to rechart their careers, search for and identify the jobs that match their abilities and aspirations, and acquire the skills and capabilities to do those jobs. Re-employment support will help minimize underemployment and enhance the skills and adaptability of structurally unemployed workers. It will help them take the risks of transiting to new growth areas. It could also serve as a small automatic stabilizer during economic downturns by supporting domestic consumption. Without a mechanism to save workers, we are today forced to save jobs. And that may not always be a good idea. Rather, we should let jobs that have become obsolete die out and businesses that have become unviable to unwind and focus our efforts on training and moving workers into higher paying jobs. We need to foster greater labour market dynamism through efficient reallocation of workers rather than protect jobs through assistance delivered to employers. Our current approach of supporting workers by subsidizing their existing jobs through transfers to firms may have to gradually pivot to directly supporting workers and their retraining into the new jobs of the future. This could be through subsidized attach and train schemes with growth firms short of skilled workers. Such schemes are already available today and we should see how they can be scaled up as part of a comprehensive 
Reemployment Support Program. A word of caution. We should design support measures as re-employment facilitation rather than as unemployment benefits. Providing assistance without a deliberate link to employment search and active upskilling leads to very poor outcomes, as shown by the experience in many countries. A well-designed re-employment support program should be time-bound. Prolonged unemployment benefits reduce the motivation to work. Canada and Poland have done it quite smartly. They set the maximum duration of support, depending on the business cycle. A longer duration when the unemployment rate is higher and the probability of finding a job is lower. Moving on to the escalators. The first escalator is the Progressive Wage Model, or PWM, which provides a framework for wages to improve as workers become more skilled. There are some administration and support industries in Singapore where firms have tended to rely on business models that keep labour costs low. With a relatively small number of such firms in these industries and many foreign workers widely available, employers had some monopsony power over their local workers in setting wages and benefits. It is a clear case where the labour market was imperfect and not working well. Competition was limited, labour mobility was not high, and wages were therefore depressed. The PWM, Progressive Wage Model, has helped to map training and career pathways for workers to improve their productivity in three such industries, cleaning, landscaping, and security services. Levies for foreign work permit holders were increased, which helped to curb the monopsony power of the employers and improve the bargaining position of local workers. Now, these measures have enabled the workers in these sectors to enjoy wage increases in line with improvements in productivity. Higher productivity, in turn, has improved service quality and business profits in these industries. The PWM has been successful in lifting the wage growth of these industries. PWM sectors have seen cumulative wage growth of around 30%, compared to 21% for workers at the median. Unlike a static minimum wage, the progressive wage model acts as a wage escalator based on a framework of industry-recognized qualifications and competencies. The PWM's coverage needs to be broadened. We need a progressive wage model to help workers in other industries facing the same conditions of low levels of wages and low rates of wage growth. Today, the PWM covers only 3% of the resident workforce. The government is committed to extend the PWM to more industries, but it will take time, as it involves intensive tripartite consultations. The way tender processes are carried out for the services covered under the PWM could be relooked. Cleaning companies, for instance, have complained that contracts continue to be awarded to the cheapest bidders who often pay their workers the lowest wages. This makes it economically unviable for these companies who want to abide by the progressive wage model because they might lose their contract. So factors such as the local employment share, technology and productivity parameters could be given higher weightage in tender evaluations. It has been suggested that government take the lead in best sourcing such service contracts and hopefully companies in the private sector 
would follow suit. Even with the progressive wage model, firms may have less incentive to hire locals at higher wages and adopt new technology if they still have access to an ample supply of cheap foreign workers. This brings us to the second escalator, reclaiming jobs for locals. We need to be more deliberate in reducing the number of foreign workers in domestic non-tradable sectors and freeing up these jobs for Singaporeans. This cannot be done in one step without creating large disruptions. But if we tighten the intake of low-skilled foreign labour in a determined and progressive manner over a few years, it would help drive restructuring in these industries, promote the adoption of technology and increase productivity, and help to sustain wage, growth, wage gains across a wider range of occupations. There are about 620,000 resident workers in so-called blue-collar jobs, service and sales workers, craftsmen, operators and labourers, but excluding uh, clerical workers. The median wage of these occupations, including employer CPF contribution, ranges from $1,500 to $2,350. Stripping out foreign work permit holders in construction, marine shipyard and process sectors, as well as the migrant domestic workers, there are about 290,000 work permit holders in the rest of the economy, and a majority of them working in the same similar blue-collar jobs as the 620,000 resident workers. So as a rough estimate, one out of three low-wage service jobs are taken up by cheap foreign labour. This cannot be good for local wages. The demand for many domestic services like cleaning, maintenance and cooking is inelastic and wages will have to go up if the number of foreign workers is reduced. The increase in wages, coupled with improvements in work conditions, and prospects for a meaningful career should gradually attract Singaporeans into these domestic services. The transition will no doubt be challenging. Firms whose business models today rely excessively on low-cost labour may have to exit. There may have to be some consolidation in these industries, such as retail and food and beverage. It is likely that there will be local job, loss job losses in the initial phase. Moving from a low-wage equilibrium, such as the one that we are trapped in now, to a high-wage equilibrium, such as the one we aspire to, is always a tricky business. The reclaiming of local jobs should extend beyond low-wage workers to the broad middle as well. I had asked in my last lecture whether we should consider gradually raising the minimum qualifying salary for SPAS holders closer to the median wage of $4,500 from the current $2,500. The reason is this. SPAS holders would be largely in so-called mid-tier associated professional and technician jobs, APT jobs. At $2,500 today, the minimum qualifying salary for SPAS holders is still significantly lower than the median gross income from work of APTs, resident APTs which is $4,150, including employer CPF contribution. So that's a wide gap. We need to close it. I'm not suggesting that SPAS workers should be drastically curtailed. Many of them are making valuable contributions to our economy and society. How could we have coped with COVID-19 last year if we did not have the many nurses on SPAS here? 
But when S-Pass holders are available in such large numbers and are paid around 30% less than locals, there are two possible effects. One, local wages are likely to be depressed. And two, some of our ITE and polytechnic graduates are probably being competed out of these jobs. Why not pay S-Pass workers closer to the local median and let the market settle the employment profile? In some occupations, we might see an increase in local employment at better wages. In other occupations where Singaporeans are unable or unwilling to enter, we will continue to employ the S-Pass holders. The scope for reclaiming local jobs at good wages is probably quite significant in the education and healthcare sectors. These are the two sectors that I cited in my last lecture as good candidates for becoming more exportable. According to MAS estimates, the health and education sector has an elasticity of substitution of 1.5. This is the highest among services industries. This means that if the wages of foreign workers in healthcare or education increase by 10%, the demand for local workers as substitutes will increase by 15%. Not all jobs can benefit from technologically driven productivity growth. That does not mean that they cannot enjoy positive wage growth. Faster productivity growth in the tradable sectors such as manufacturing and financial services implies faster wage growth in those sectors. Now this increases demand for non-tradable services in the economy such as food and beverage, healthcare and wellness, recreation and entertainment which in turn means higher labour demand in those non-tradable sectors and higher wages. Economists call this the Balassa-Samuelson effect, the mechanism through which higher wages in the tradable sector lead to higher wages in the non-tradable sectors as well. As the American economist Richard Baldwin puts it, the Balassa-Samuelson effect is one of the best forms of redistribution. It is market-driven. But in Singapore, we have blunted the Belasa-Samuelson effect through a large foreign worker intake in the non-tradable sector. So a strategy of tightening foreign labour supply to reclaim local jobs will likely have cost implications across society. Now, if there is consolidation in the industry to achieve greater efficiencies, then it will not be inflationary. If there are productivity improvements through technology, the cost pass-through would be limited. But if the higher wages are not matched by higher productivity, then it would translate into higher costs, such as for healthcare and social services. And it may well be that the government has to bear a larger fiscal burden to support some of these higher wages in the non-tradable sectors. Now that in and of itself is not a reason for perpetuating higher foreign worker dependency and low wages in these sectors. It just means there are trade-offs that must be weighed very carefully. The key question for Singapore is this. Do we want a dual economy with high inequality or a more inclusive society with higher wages but also higher costs? The Nordic countries have strict limits on low-wage foreign workers, which has facilitated a more equitable income distribution, low unemployment and a sustained commitment to productivity and innovation. If Singapore wants to be a bit more like the Nordic countries, it is not just government policies that would need to be adjusted, but also the mindsets of businesses, citizens and workers. Firms must reduce their reliance on cheap labour. 
Citizens must be prepared to pay more for better quality services. And workers must be open to a greater variety of jobs. This brings us to the third escalator, making every job a professional job. The key to understanding and beginning to address issues of income inequality is to look at differences in occupational wages at as granular and detailed a level as possible. Why do many occupations in non-tradable domestic services pay so little in Singapore? Many of these jobs are paid less compared to advanced country norms. In some of these countries, professions that are not traditionally considered white-collar jobs are well paid relative to their median wages. They also have favorable career development paths. Let me highlight two categories of jobs, craftsmen and related trades, and health, education, and social workers. Consider wages in four craftsman-type occupations, carpenter, electrician, welder, and vehicle mechanic. And let us compare the median wages of these four occupations across Singapore, Australia, US, and UK, relative to their respective estimated national median wages, which is represented by the horizontal line at 100 in the chart. In Singapore, carpenters and electricians are paid only 50 to 55% of our median wage, while these occupations are paid at 100% or more of the median wage in Australia, the US, and UK. Our welders are paid better at 70% of the median wage, but still lower than in the other countries where welders are paid 85% to 125% of the median wage. Our vehicle mechanics are paid well at 90% of the median wage, and this is roughly similar to Australia and the US. Maybe it's because our cars are so expensive and we take uh, care of them so well that we are prepared to pay our vehicle mechanics handsomely. Let us now look at the four occupations in the healthcare, education, and social services sector. Four occupations, special education teachers, social work professionals, nurses, and childcare workers. Special education teachers are paid at 90% of the median wage in Singapore, compared to 105% to 120% of the median wage in the other three countries. Social workers, social work professionals are paid at close to 95% of the median wage in Singapore not far from Australia and the US, where it is closer to 100%. Nurses in Singapore are paid at the median wage. In the UK and Australia, they are paid 10 to 15% higher than the median wage. Childcare workers are paid well below the median in all four countries. And this is somewhat strange, given how much people everywhere value their children. Perhaps more striking than the statistics are the real life stories. A Singaporean lady who wrote to me after my last lecture related how her friend, who is a doctor in London working at the NHS, the National Health Service, found that the Polish plumber fixing her home heating system had a higher income than her. In fact, he also went on better vacations and was giving her vacation tips. In Australia, visiting relatives, I've seen how the electrician drives to the customer's house in a car. He's well-dressed, carries with him sophisticated equipment, goes about his task professionally. The median wage of an electrician in Australia is more than 60% above the national median wage in Australia. Inequality, income inequality is high, 
because wages in many skilled blue-collar jobs in Singapore are low relative to the median wage compared to other countries. In Singapore, many of these professions are not well paid or seen as promising careers. There is a social stigma against manual work and a reliance on low-wage foreign workers to fill these jobs. One particular occupation that we should pay early attention to is long-term care providers, because we're all getting old. A study by the Lien Foundation on long-term care manpower benchmarked Singapore to four jurisdictions in Asia, Australia, Hong Kong, Japan, and Korea, all with high-income, fast-aging populations. According to the report, despite concerted efforts to raise pay, redesign jobs, improve skills and productivity, the sector in Singapore seems afflicted by constant churn. There is heavy reliance on foreign workers. About 70% of direct care workers in Singapore's nursing homes, daycare centres and formal home care settings are foreigners, compared to 32% in Australia, less than 10% in Japan and 5% in Hong Kong and Korea. Direct care workers' salaries here are lower than the tax-adjusted long-term care compensation in the other four countries, where these jobs are also enjoying a high status. Some efforts are underway here to raise the status of skilled workers in domestic non-tradable sectors. Take, for instance, plumbers. A 10-year operation and technology roadmap has been drawn up to prepare plumbing firms for the new economy. The Singapore Plumbing Society, the National Trades Union Congress, and seven small and medium enterprises have undertaken to transform the sector. Plumbing is skilled work. It must become a conscious career choice rather than a fallback option. In Australia, to become a plumber, there are minimum requirements in formal certification, licensing, apprenticeship, and work experience. Maybe there is something we can learn here. In fact, should we not set a goal, make all jobs in Singapore professional? This is not a slogan. To be professional means being qualified and practicing in a defined area of work, having expertise and a commitment to that area of practice. Should we not all aim to be professional in our work? Professionalizing the jobs of plumbers, cleaners, gardeners, and other skilled workers will require a change in the nature of these jobs. We need to increase the skills content, leverage on technology, improve business processes, raise the quality of output. The cleaner of the future may be required to undertake basic maintenance, plumbing, changing of lights, landscaping, and provide delivery services. This is already happening in London. To professionalize all jobs, we could start by dropping from our vocabulary this category called PMET, Professional Managerial Executive and Technical Jobs. If we can't abolish it, then at least drop the P from the category. It suggests that other jobs are not professional. We should question their premise that all Singaporeans should aim to take up PMET jobs. All Singaporeans should take up P jobs, professionals. Any population would house a distribution of skill sets requiring a diversity of pathways that can lead to different types of excellence. To be an inclusive society, we must value social and vocational skills as much as academic intelligence. In European countries, skilled trades provide a middle-class lifestyle for many workers. These jobs provide dignity and social status. We must do the same in Singapore.
it is not just a matter of government policy. Though policy can play a role, it is a whole-of-country effort. Switzerland is a shining example of what it takes. At the question and answer session following my last lecture, Chung Kai Fong and I discussed Switzerland. What is it about Switzerland where every job is valued and there is such a premium on quality? A Swiss gentleman in Singapore wrote to me after hearing the lecture. Let me quote him. Quote, Switzerland has cultivated for decades a tradition of formalized and certificated vocational training apprenticeships. There is a diligently structured and formalized training course for almost every occupation, from nurses to plumbers, from salespersons to gardeners, from farmers to accountants, from truck drivers to bakers, from cooks to dental assistants, from instrument makers to hairdressers, from ski instructors to watchmakers and office clerks. There are about 250 vocational trainings that are certified by federal authorities." Unquote. Another Swiss gentleman had this to say. For non-white-collar jobs to receive the appropriate recognition, it requires a triangular relationship, the apprentice, the company, the customer. And he says, in Singapore, the above-described relationship among worker, company, and customer seems to be missing. Instead of industry players in the non-white-collar sectors taking a keen interest to develop a skilled workforce and hence raising the wages of the workers, the government is the party doing the heavy lifting. It is telling that the progressive wage model has to be mandated." Unquote. We must aim for a pervasive and persistent professionalism, a relentless quest for excellence in every job throughout the work life. And that leads us to the fourth escalator, lifelong learning. As Senior Minister Dharman Shanmugaratnam puts it, we need, and I quote, a fundamental evolution in our education and learning systems to not just focus on the first 20 years of life or the first 12 to 15 years of learning before people enter work, but to focus on lifelong learning." Unquote. Training and skills upgrading needs to be integrated as part of work life, not an episodic luxury during lull periods. Every job should be examined for how it will change in the next two to three years, what skills are required, and how we can train and the people in these jobs to upskill. Workforce transformation must become one of the core capabilities of any enterprise. Is it unthinkable that every worker is allowed to take a paid six-month learning sabbatical between age 40 and 50? The need for continuous education is probably strongest for those in this age category to re-equip them for the next phase of their careers, either in the same jobs or different jobs. So why not take time off to pick up fresh skills or capabilities that will be relevant for their jobs in future? Obviously, we will have to address the question of how this will be paid for. We would also need a structured process with clear learning outcomes. Otherwise, the sabbatical might be spent on the golf course. We have to make it possible for seniors to remain actively engaged at work and to learn new things. The pedagogy will have to be different. Repetition may be necessary. I'm 57. 
I had to be briefed three times before I understood blockchains. For our senior workers, staying engaged at work and very importantly learning new things is critical to staving off mental decline. It seems the neural networks of the brain are best served by learning entirely new things, not related things. I once asked a doctor if I should try learning a new language to reduce the risk of dementia. And he said, and I quote, no, you are good at languages. It won't help you much. You should try learning something that you are not good at, that your brain is not wired for, unquote. So I have decided to learn to play the piano after I retire, since I have no musical talent whatsoever. Skills Future spearheads Singapore's drive towards lifelong learning. It aims to invest in people throughout life. It involves funding, it involves a delivery infrastructure, and it involves going into the community where people live. We are not doing too badly, and other countries are seeking to learn from us. But we must learn from others too. Denmark is probably the gold standard in lifelong learning. Danes learn from their time in the kindergarten to almost to the time they die. Children don't just learn, they learn to learn. And as adults, they never stop learning. Denmark is top within the EU, with 28% of Danes between age 30 and 64 years of age participating in some kind of learning activity over the preceding four weeks. This is most remarkable. We would do well to remember the Latin phrase, non scole set vitae. We learn not for school, but for life. I have focused on jobs and wages as a means for economic opportunity and social inclusion. But there are groups for whom what I've said so far will not be enough. We cannot become a truly inclusive society if we do not look out for the least among us, our aged destitute, our disabled, our special needs children, our migrant workers. In the interest of time, let me focus on just migrant workers, specifically the work permit holders. The migrant worker is the most vulnerable group in our workforce. The outbreak of COVID-19 in our worker dormitories last year shown a bright and painful light on how our migrant workers lived and worked. Many Singaporeans were shocked and saddened to know of their conditions. And as there, there's been a generous outpouring of support from many Singaporeans for our migrant workers in their hour of need as the virus ravaged through the worker dormitories. Let us build on this collective sense of empathy to better understand our migrant workers and to provide better lives for them as part of an inclusive society. Our migrant workers, too, are part of the Singapore story. Millions of them have, over the decades, helped to build this country. They play a key role in our economy and society. Foreign work permit holders make up almost 25% of our workforce. We see their work everywhere. Our MRT stations, our HDB flats, our shopping malls, our office buildings. They clean our tables at hawker centres, they serve our food at restaurants, they look after us in our hospitals. We have nearly 250,000 migrant domestic workers labouring in our homes. They clean, they cook, they take care of our young children and our elderly parents. But our migrant workers face many struggles. Most migrant workers arrive in Singapore with a heavy load of debt. They have to pay a few thousand dollars to agents in order to get a job here. 
and a substantial part of what they earn goes to pay off these debts. Their salaries are low and sometimes delayed, sometimes not even paid. Sometimes the cost of training is deducted from their salaries. Some migrant workers are reported to be on 12-hour shifts. In some cases, the food catered for these workers is neither healthy nor sufficient for the demands of the job. Some migrant workers do not get adequate medical leave to recover from serious injuries sustained at work, despite the law providing for this. I've heard of instances where injured workers were forced to leave when their work permits expired, before their compensation claims are resolved. As for migrant domestic workers, we keep reading in the media cases of these workers being overworked, underfed and abused. Many foreign domestic workers also shoulder a disproportionate amount of the emotional burden of caring for elderly patients. The government has put in various measures to enhance the welfare of our migrant workers. There are strict requirements in place for workplace safety and proper accommodation. Work injury compensation is mandatory, so are regular medical checkups. Last year, the government moved swiftly to improve conditions in the dormitories, and there are now plans to build dormitories with better facilities and living conditions. A new system is being rolled out to provide primary health care for migrant workers. Can the government do more? Yes, a couple of things more. For a start, we could ban the practice of transporting migrant workers at the back of goods vehicles. They are exposed to the elements and its risk of serious injury in the event of an accident. Yes, it will raise business costs. But the question we should ask ourselves is whether we would allow our own citizens to be transported this way. In 2008, an eight-year-old boy was hurled out of his school bus in a traffic accident. There was an outcry from parents, and within a year, the government made it compulsory for all school, small school buses to be fitted with seat belts. But more important than what the government can do is what the rest of society can do. The practices of many of our businesses which employ migrant workers must change. There are clear laws against many of the abuses that I have highlighted. The Ministry of Manpower deploys a small army of officers to enforce these laws and check for abuses. Yet every year, MOM officers pick up dormitory operators in breach of licensing conditions. And MOM can't be everywhere. There must be public vigilance to bad practices and public pressure on errant businesses to change their ways. Thankfully, there is growing awareness among Singaporeans about the plight of migrant workers. And it is very heartening that we have quite a few dedicated NGOs who look out for the welfare and interests of our migrant workers. If we are not in a position to help our migrant workers directly, let us support the work these NGOs do. Simple expressions of acknowledgement and gratitude can help a lot. Perhaps communities can launch initiatives to thank the migrant workers who clean and maintain their neighbourhoods. For our foreign domestic workers, perhaps employers can invest a little to help them acquire useful skills that they can use when they go back to their home countries. How much are we willing to pay for an inclusive society? One of the themes that has run through from my last lecture through to this lecture is that we have a sizable part of the economy based on cheap labour, local and foreign, and quite often, proposal to raise local wages or improve conditions for foreign workers is met with resistance, 
that it will put these businesses out, it will lead to layoffs of local employees, or lead to higher costs for Singaporeans. I do not want to trivialize these costs, but it is a test of how earnestly we want to be an inclusive society. Are we willing to share the burden? Are we willing to pay the price? Let me close with what I believe was Singapore's finest hour last year as we battled COVID-19. It was April 2020, and our migrant workers were facing a massive wave of infections and confined to their dormitories, living in fear and anxiety. Prime Minister Lee Sen Lung spoke to reassure the nation. And he spoke directly to our migrant workers, and I quote, <clears throat> To our migrant workers, let me emphasize again, we will care for you, just like we care for Singaporeans. We thank you for your cooperation during this difficult period. We will look after your health, your welfare, and your livelihood. We will work with your employers to make sure that you get paid and you can send money home. And we will help you stay in touch with friends and family." Unquote. PM Lee did not stop there. He goes on to say, and I quote, Ramadan begins in a few days' time. We will make sure that arrangements are made for our Muslim workers when Idol Fitri comes next month. We will celebrate with our Muslim friends just as we celebrated the Indian New Year with our Indian friends last week. This is our duty and responsibility to you and your families." Unquote. Let me repeat that. This is our duty and responsibility to you and your families. Duty and responsibility. I think PM was speaking for all Singaporeans. We have a duty and responsibility to our migrant workers. Last year, many Singaporeans answered that call of duty. It augurs well for an inclusive society. Ultimately, a truly inclusive society requires a value system that places the welfare of our human being, fellow human beings alongside our own. We can be an inspiring nation driven by purpose and based on values. I will share my thoughts on this in my fourth and final lecture next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Menon. May I now invite Ms. Chong Mei Hong to start a Q&A session. Hello, uh, good afternoon and a very warm and special hello to all of you who are uh, watching this on uh, Facebook Live. Um, Ravi, I just wanted to say, you know, what a pleasure it was uh, both to read your draft earlier this afternoon and then uh, to listen to you. Uh, and I must say, listening to you, I was particularly struck by how bold and in a way transformational you know, many of your, your ideas are because, I mean, um, if they were implemented, it amounts to a complete top-to-toe um, overworking of uh, Singapore society. So, so I'm just wondering, you know, as, as someone who is an important economic um, policy maker, I just wonder how much traction is there, you know, um, in terms of support for this kind of ideas? And also, if you were to, I mean, your, 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 your very broad uh, agenda has many different uh, moving parts. So if we were to say, you know, okay, now you are going to be the, the, the economic, socio-economic czar that's going to be in charge of implementing this, what would be one key area that you will focus on first? <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for the question, uh, Moi Hung, and thanks for joining us. Um, I wouldn't say the ideas here 
uh, taken on their own are transformative. Many of these ideas have been talked about in many circles, uh, including in government circles. Uh, lots of discussions take place within government circles uh, on many of these aspects. Um, if there's anything new is that I've tried to put them together and these reflect my own personal convictions. Um, and I offer them not as proposals or answers because you know I can't claim to have studied them in great depth. Uh, but I have looked at them with some interest I, and these are my tentative ideas. And really we should have a conversation around these things. As I said, doing these things that in and themselves not very difficult. It's a question of public acceptance, uh, buy-in from the business community, and so on. And if, and that's why I keep emphasizing, while there are some government policies that ought to change, society and the economy itself also has to, has to come together and change some things. So, and I hope by providing examples from other countries and pointing to the situation that we are in, we can promote such a discussion. So how much traction there will be is something that we need to have a Singapore conversation over. Uh, we can't, uh, there's a tendency to think that uh, government policies can solve all this. Um, not so. Um, there ha in, in, and in many of the European countries that I mentioned, industry takes the lead. The public stands for a certain set of values that they want to see and then the government works together with them. So I hope we have that kind of uh, conversation and compact. And if we do and we converge on some, some place, it need not be the ideas that I presented, um, then we'll have a way forward. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting because one, one, uh, one of your key proposals are, um, in, in your sketching of what I call an alternative Singapore, I mean, essentially, if you know, we were to join the dots in terms of uh, what your proposals amount to, uh, we would end up with a Singapore that's very different. It would be a high wage, um, high productivity, high cost um, society. And the way we would you know, go about getting to that place is to basically have a minimum wage, a kind of wage floor at the bottom. We would tighten foreign workers' supply, reclaim jobs for locals, professionalize all jobs, and, and so on. I mean, I must say, Personally, this um, appeals very much to the inner socialist in me, um, but I do wonder, and I hope we get some questions, you know, from um, from those of you watching. I do really wonder what the SME owners, the business owners, would be saying about this, as well as um, the the workers. I noticed that quite a few um, some of the questions are coming in, and there's a certain um, uh, strain in them. So quite many, uh, quite many of our listeners are are asking, what would be the impact of this kind of um, high wage uh, economy? On, uh, on workers and would it translate to um, high prices and um, you know would they be able to would, would the, the inflation basically uh, outpace whatever wage increases they may get as they transit to professional jobs basically who's going to bear the cost of such a high wage um, society yeah that's a very good question that's exactly what uh, we need to investigate further um, and as I said, moving from a low-wage equilibrium to a high-wage equilibrium, that transition is very tricky. Uh, you can expect a fair amount of disruption and dislocation taking place. Um, but I think given how well Singapore has innovated in so many areas, this is not beyond our capability. And if you look at the small European countries who have done this well, 
um, it gives you a basis for thinking that you can. I think what will happen is that as costs and prices go up, but wages are also going up, people are able to afford, which is what you see in Switzerland and Denmark. Uh, people at the lower percentiles are able to afford uh, many things, which are highly priced. When we visit, we know that, because they still earn a decent wage. Now, of course, not everybody's wages is going to go up that way. There will be a segment, uh, and in particular in healthcare, where I think the cost increase, uh, if you pay your nurses well, you reduce foreign worker dependence, you use more technology uh, in healthcare, uh, you will see a rise in uh, prices. Many may be able to afford it because they themselves have higher wages working in other uh, non-tradable sectors, so they are able to do that. Uh, but I suspect there will be quite a number who can't. And so then the question arises, as I mentioned in the lecture, uh, then you would need, this is where the state needs to come in and provide fiscal support. Um, so if you want to reduce the number of nurses in, in Singapore, and in the process, raise wages of nurses substantially above the median, which is a case in other countries. Then you have quite a large number of people entering their profession with pride, and there's a pathway. Uh, it gives satisfaction to quite a large, it will be a middle, good middle class job and pathway for many. Um, then the cost is that maybe the bottom 20% will not be able to afford healthcare costs. So the question is, is it better for the government to help this group in particular so that we can make this transition? Which is again what the Europeans do. You do need a safety net for the people at the bottom so that you can push the mid-level wages and costs up. As I mentioned in my last lecture, one man's wage is another man's cost. And uh, wage is all, the biggest part of any company's uh, uh, cost structure. So. But the current situation is not satisfactory. We are having a dual economy. It's not as bad as in the Gulf countries, right? But we have 30% uh, of GDP in rapid productivity growth sectors, high wage growth, and then pretty much the rest, fortunately still registering positive wage growth, but the gap is widening. And then at the bottom, you have large number of foreign workers and low-wage Singaporeans side by side. How do you, and this is the price. If you want to break this inequality and break this dual economy, or at least reduce the dual economy, then we need to bear higher prices and higher costs, help those who can't bear it. But a successful outcome would be one where most of them can afford it. See, if you end up in a situation where we have to increase government subsidies for a large number of the population, that, then the policy has failed. Then it's not worth doing, right? So that is the question we need to. Now, we can never find, we cannot predict these things, but we should study them dispassionately, look at evidence and facts, make some reasonable judgments, take small steps, and learn along the way. If it doesn't pan out the way you think it's coming, adjust your course. But I think we should move. We need to move. The current situation is not good. It traps too many people in low wages. Just one um, um, 
very graphic question on this issue, and then we'll, we'll move on to um, other issues. So one of the questioners asked, you know, Singaporeans are very proud of our local food. How would you define what's a professional uh, cook, somebody who has a degree, um, or somebody whose chakwetiao is popular or not as popular? And fundamentally, do you think Singaporeans are prepared to pay $15 for a plate of chakwetiao at a hawker centre? Excellent question. That's a question I ask myself all the time. Why is it that so many of us are willing to step into a restaurant or a hotel and pay $20, $15 for chicken rice and char kway tiao with no disrespect to any of these hotels? That is actually not as good as the one you can get in the hawker center. And that's $3 or $4. So, you know, there is something about Prices are an outcome of demand and supply, and demand is a function of our willingness to pay. And we've gotten so used to paying $3 for a plate of rice that if he raises it to $3.50, we get very upset. And yet, once a month, we go to a restaurant and we spend much more. Um, but that is the crux of the question. If we can professionalize these jobs, it must mean that they should fetch higher wages because the quality of their food is good. I mean, our hawker culture is now a heritage, UNESCO heritage. We need to support it, which means we need to be prepared to pay more for it. And in extreme, I'd rather that the Chakwetiao price goes up to $8. Most of us happily and willingly pay for it. And a few of us who can't afford it, who could only afford $3, but now find themselves they can't, give them assistance. It's a better outcome if you focus assistance on a small group and the rest of us have enough high wages to pay. It's a circle, you know, uh, because when I have high wages and I pay more for your services, you get high wages and you are able to afford more things. Um, I suppose another impact of high wages might be uh, you know, how it could affect our cost competitiveness. So there's a question here whether the professionalization of traditionally blue-collar jobs in non-tradable sectors, will it affect the competitiveness of our tradable sectors as Singaporean workers pivot towards the former? And how can we maintain a sustainable balance? Another very good question, which is again why these are issues we need to study very deeply, but not not take as given the past paradigm. I think I mentioned in either my last or previous lecture, there's a very strong psyche across businesses and even workers and across government uh, that is overly sensitive to cost increases. And I think it has got to do with what we went through in 1985, where we were taken by surprise by how far we let our cost structure get out of hand. Now, you know, as an economist, I know as a small open economy that you can never let that go. You must always watch your real effective exchange rate, your relative unit labor cost, your exportable goods must be competitively priced, like to like. So that hasn't changed. But we are a very different economy from 1985. And if you again look at the experience of the advanced economies elsewhere, they pay their wages well, they pay their workers well, and they sell their products at higher prices. But they're able to sell them because the quality is high. And we do, as consumers, we know that. We pay better if the quality is high, if the service is high. And I think in many regards, the productivity in our tradable goods sector is world class. Um, 
and we are able to sell. The price will go up a little, there'll be some loss of market share, but on balance, you have to weigh. Are we still competitive? Our competitiveness must come from higher skills content, higher productivity, superior technology, better service, not only from cost. Cost matters, but I think it matters less than it did 30 years ago. There should not be a disincentive for us to raise wages. We should not jump to the conclusion that any wage increase like that will pass through and cost structures will go up. I think that you see that as a rhetoric and almost yes. as conventional wisdom. Yes. I don't think that is true. And we've already seen cost increases and we're still able to compete. You made some um, very interesting suggestions on minimum wage. There's a question here from Prof Tommy Cole, who agrees that we should have both a minimum wage and a, the progressive wage model. The question is, what should be the minimum wage? According to some scholars and statisticians, it should be around 1,300. Does this sound right to you? And I'd like, just like to add on one um, other question on minimum wage. You mentioned you know, that you went from yes to no and then back to yes essentially i just wondering you know what was the main factor that led you to say yes this time okay to tommy's question um i don't it's not something i've studied deeply so um i think the kinds of numbers that have been talked about between 1000 and 1500 would seem about right i think below 1000 you're not likely to help a lot I would be very nervous if we got closer to 1,005. I know there is sympathy for that level mm -hmm. because it's not a large amount for many people in the middle class, but you really got to look at the number of workers making around that much money uh, as in wages. Don't put them at risk of unemployment, right? You, can't for you can force a minimum wage, but you can't force employment, right? So uh, the empirical literature gives us some confidence that you can have it, provided you set it quite low. So, you know, as a conservative civil servant, I would start with something lower, watch how things are panning out, see if we can manage the dislocations, and then maybe make it make an increase later on. A announce this well in advance so that businesses can adjust, uh, so that, and we tell them, look, we don't want you to shed workers, but improve your processes, uh, consolidate your operations so that you can pay this minimum wage in a few years' time to come. So, Tommy, I've not answered your question on a number, but I think, <laughs> I think there is a way here. So, I agree with you. I think it's possible, but it needs careful thought. And I think the discussions and discourse in Singapore doesn't appreciate fully the, the intricacies uh, on all sides. Why did I change my mind three times? When I left university as a young economist, I thought the minimum wage was a bad idea. It's classic microeconomics. When you set a floor that is above what the market would clear at, you will create unemployment, right? It has been shown in so many cases. Rent control is an example. Um, and so the theory is very clear mm. on what will happen. Um, and I thought this was quite a bad idea. Uh, then I studied in, over the next many years the, the empirical literature. And as Alan Manning puts it very well, there are lots of studies trying to find this 
unemployment defect. And it's elusive, they can't find it. They find when the minimum wage is imposed or when it's increased, it gets passed on to the workers. There is no big cutback in employment. Prices increase a bit, profits go down, they absorb. That varies across sectors and industries. There are a few studies that found some small employment effects, so you can't generalize. But it gave me more confidence, not from the theoretical point of view that I started with, but from the empirical literature, that actually if you do this right, if you design this well, it could work. It would help more than it, than it hurts. Then years later, I changed my mind again and thought that the minimum wage was not a good idea because mostly for political economy reasons. You can't design a, 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 a rational and reasonable minimum wage, but you see what happens in many countries. It becomes politicized and there'll be continuous pressures to raise it. And that's when the discipline is lost. And sometimes, I think in European countries, the minimum wage is at the close to or at the point at which is adverse effects on employment outweigh the benefits. There are current proposals in the US to dramatically raise the minimum wage. My personal view, I think that's going too far. The quantum of increase, I don't think is going to be helpful to many segments of the economy. But unfortunately, that debate has become politicized. So for political economy reasons, I thought, better not get into all that. Focus on progressive wage, progress on, focus on workfare income supplements. Don't do this. And more recently, I changed my mind again. I thought I would have more confidence in Singapore that, that we have a very strong tripartite mechanism that workers, employers, and the government can sit together and come to an understanding of how we will design a minimum wage and how future increases can be based on what kind of framework or formula. We have formulas for electricity prices, we have formulas for water tariffs, <laughs> we have formulas for ministerial salaries. I'm sure we can come up with a decent formula for minimum wages, but you must maintain that trust among the tripartite uh, structure. So I've become more recently back to yes, because I think if any country can do this well, Singapore can. But again, I say this without studying the full economic effects, prices, wages, employment, and they vary across different sectors. So first we need to put aside ideology and conventional wisdom, look at the data, look at the facts, and debate dispassionately, come to a consensus, I think we can pull it off. So right now I'm a yes, but I might change my mind again <laughs> in the future. <laughs> so would this, might this be one of the low-hanging fruits you know, that you could uh, help pluck? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so because of the other thing that I said. Of all the elements in the architecture, the two safety nets, the one trampoline and the four escalators, the minimum wage will help people at the P10, P20, 
and they need to be helped because we saw the ratio uh, P20 to P50, we are low by international standards, so it will help. Um, but I do think the more impactful measures are about getting the progressive wage model expanded much more broadly than today. And there are plans and there is a commitment to do that. So I'm not sure I would describe the minimum wage as a low-hanging fruit, especially given all the unfortunate controversy that is built up around it. I still think it's a good idea, but um, if you want to do things faster to impact more people, the progressive wage model might be a better thing to expand. Uh, we can look at how we can improve the workfare income supplement. And I would really like to explore this idea of professionalizing every job. Set mm. that as a national goal. It is mm. not a low-hanging fruit, but precisely because that is the ultimate fruit. Because if you can professionalize every job, and then I read about what the Swiss gentleman sent me. Uh, a range of jobs that require certification, licensing, apprenticeship, and continuous learning. It's inspiring. I would go for that. But that's not low-hanging. But you've got to start doing that now so that in five or ten years' time, you will get there. There's, a, there's somebody watching called Dexter Teo who's very keen on this. So he says, I like the idea of making PMET P only. Who can take the lead to start this process or movement? How does one even go about something so uh, major? Well, it is our own invention. Um, in the international uh, labour occupation classifications, there's a category called professional, there's a category for managerial services. Um, this is international convention. It hasn't changed for many, many decades. We've adopted it, and what we did actually is to combine these three, these four things together. <laughs> you mean so, PMET is a Singapore invention? I yeah, <laughs> so PMET is a Singapore invention of sorts by putting them together. Um, I think it's, it has symbolic and signaling value. Uh, on the, the, on not the all of us can yeah. become managers or executives. Not all of us are going to be techno uh, technicians or technology savvy. So we can accept that some jobs, you know, that's a proper definition. What is a professional? Um, isn't a nurse a professional? Definitely, yes. Isn't a plumber a professional? A profession is someone who excels in his profession. So, I mean, again, it's not, uh, it's symbolic, it's signaling. If there is appetite, um, we could do it. Again, I'm looking for a conversation around this. Uh, and I'm sure people will, they'll be able to, some people will be able to come up with reasons why, no, if you do that, it's not a good idea. And we need to listen to those, those views. But I've just put a thought out there. Um, and ultimately, it's for the government or the Ministry of Manpower to, to decide. Um, no, I'm just thinking um, beyond the signalling effect, um, how might you actually go about professionalising all these domestic services job? You mentioned uh, plumbing, right? And that there's a timeline and an entire framework. So would you have to go sort of sector by sector and look at the job, the requirements and so on? We have to look occupation by occupation. I think we spend too much time uh, in our public discourse and national discussions, by looking at Gini coefficients, all the P ratios, P50, P20, but those are income outcomes. What do, where do incomes come from? They come from jobs and occupations. And I found it a lot more insightful 
to look at occupational wages and try to understand why are occupational wages determined in the way they are. And so we just picked, you know, my, my staff helped me pick these uh, four or four occupations, eight occupations, and did this comparison. You should do that for every occupation. And then for each of them ask, now why is it that we are at variance? There may be good reasons. And I think we, we you shouldn't just say, oh, because Australia pays so much, we should pay so much. There will be good reasons. The scarcities and demand and supply is different. But we need to understand those things. And if you take jobs like plumbing and electricians, and this is some of the feedback that I've gotten over the last few days, is that today that those are jobs that people don't formally train for. There is a wide variety in standards. You don't know, because you don't know what you're getting, you tend not to pay much. But if you know this, see, where does it work in hairdressing? Our hairdressers are paid well because there is a system. Their, their card tells you, okay, guys don't know these things very much. For us, it's a haircut. <laughs> but, you know, there are different designations mm. of skills levels, stylist and senior stylist, and you choose, and there, there, there are price points. Um, we need to have that for electricians. We need to have that for plumbers, for gardeners. Um, and when I read how the Swiss have done it, uh, and some smaller European countries have done it. We can, but it's a lot of hard work. There is no silver bullet. There is, it's not like a minimum wage increase. This is going occupation by occupation. But I think if we do that, we can start cracking this and professionalize every job and make the drive for excellence an important ingredient of every job. That sounds inspiring. There's a question here about the Gini coefficient that you just mentioned. This is from Ravi Filament, who is the General Secretary of the Red Dot United. You pointed out that the Gini coefficient is not a sufficient measure of inequality. So similarly, the GDP may not be a good measure of human well-being. Do you think, are we on the right path by using and maybe overly relying on GDP as a planning tool? We don't rely on the GDP as a be-all and end-all planning tool. It's just the one that gets the most attention. Not just the government, the media, <laughs> the popular commentary, um, right? The most important variable, I would say, is the rate of growth in median wages. The reason why advanced countries have so much, that the, the consensus in favor of the market, in favor of globalization, and existing structures are breaking down is because of stagnation in the middle class. And uh, I think I mentioned this, it goes back to the wisdom of Aristotle and, and so on, that if the middle doesn't feel confident of their future, democracy suffers. So we need to ensure that the median wage continues to grow, grow well. So far, we've achieved that, which is why I think broadly th things are okay in Singapore. We have a low-wage worker problem, quite a serious one. But at the median, we, we're doing well. And we need to sustain it. It's not easy. And so we'll need to, all, all the more, we need to professionalize. So more than GDP, I would personally look at median wage growth, how it's doing. Uh, but GDP is a good major cause of median wage growth. Um, people who criticize the GDP growth number, 
need to realize what are the alternatives. Actually, what you need is a composite of a few, which is what the government always does. And I think in the Ministry of Finance, the uh, public sector outcomes reports they put out, they look at a whole range of indicators. GDP is just one of them, inflation, uh, wage growth, uh, and your human indices are very important, um, life expectancy, and so on. Um, you can't uh, put all of them into one index, it doesn't make sense. So you just have to look at about five or 10 or 12 uh, indices that describe collectively human welfare. A GDP is just one of them. And GDP is a, a very good enabler. I said earlier on, why we did well in this decade in median wage growth than the previous decade. And a lot of it has to do with GDP growth. Because GDP growth was good, and because it was also it also happened to be widespread, and a good part of it from 2015 onwards came from productivity growth, wages were held up at the median. So we've got to continue to emphasize that. So it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. So let's not discard the GDP growth, but let's not worship GDP growth as if it's the only thing. There are a couple of questions here on um, the, the friction when, that happens when the economy is going through uh, transformation and uh, disruption. Um, so there's a question from Eve Lo who asks, uh, we all know of educated friends and family members who have been displaced or furloughed due to COVID-19 and they ended up in low barrier jobs such as becoming private um, hire drivers. How do we persuade them to reskill and reinvent uh, themselves so that they are on a more stable um, future career path. Another related question about automation and how they may end up getting rid, um, not just of workers, but of entire jobs. And while the safety net is good, you know, given how difficult it may be for them to transit to new jobs, is there a role for the government in matching them um, to future jobs? That goes to um, the trampoline uh, um, question um, that I mentioned. Uh, I would like to call it re-employment support rather than unemployment benefit. Because when people in their mid 40s to late 40s, early 50s, they get displaced and we all know of you know, people around us in that situation, um, they're caught in a bind. And there are several reasons. One, uh, although they are usually at above median wage, uh, it's not as if they have a lot of savings. Um, surveys have shown that uh, their disposable savings is not that high to tide over. They can tide over two or three months. So financial resources are limited. So they're in a hurry to get another job, to start making pay. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> some of the people in this group have large housing mortgages. Um, some of them have two. They have school-going children. Some of them are closer to university, so that's more expensive. So you have fixed outlays um, that actually limit your mobility and flexibility once you're displaced. And this is where I think we can take a leave from Denmark because there is a high degree of people are not afraid to move from one job to another or if they're displaced from one to move to another, but they have time to prepare. People need time to look for what fits their inclinations, their aptitudes, and then 
learn these skills and capabilities, go for an attachment, go for a course, you know, uh, there are attachment and train programs. There's no shortage of schemes. Go for some of these. But the problem is that many of them suffer a financial loss of income. And so some form of re-employment support, I think, could be useful. Because it, gives, it takes some of the risk that they're bearing. Uh, if I need eight months to prepare for this find and prepare for this job, uh, I don't have a regular income. How will I service my mortgage? How will I send my kids to university? How will I pay the tuition fee? So I think we need some kind of re-employment support. Again, I'm laying it out as simply a concept. There's nothing terribly innovative about it. Um, again, the devil's in the details. What should be the replacement ratio? If you were drawing $8,000 a month, do you support $8,000? Now that's going to be very expensive. <laughs> and who's going to pay who's for it? Pay for There's it. got to be some sharing between the employer and the government. It has to be time-bound. Uh, one of the abuses of the system you see in many countries is people are searching for jobs for three, four years. And they cook up all kinds of you know, paperwork to show the authorities, I'm looking for a job. But actually, he's not seriously looking. And he's not seriously training. So you need a whole structure um, to make sure that these people are picking up relevant skills with a career pathway in mind. And in Skills Future, we have the basic ingredients for many of this already. Uh, the conversion programs, the attach and train programs, and so on. We I'm need to structure on, it and scale it. I'm just curious on, uh, I mean, on this particular re-employment assistance scheme. Uh, where do you stand conceptually? Are you in favour of something that is funded primarily by the worker themselves, with the employer, or that is pooled via some kind of insurance? Um, I will state in general terms, um, anything that works well and what economists would call is incentive compatible that makes sure good behavior is something that involves skin in the game from all the parties involved all stakeholders have some skin in the game it cannot be that the the worker doesn't put in anything right uh, he has to demonstrate uh, commitment the employer has to put in something and the state has to put in something. What the ratios will be, those are the details that need to be worked on. But I think as a principle, there must be a burden sharing for making sure that we can help our workers in their 40s and 50s who are at risk of displacement make these switches in career. It's not an easy task. Um, so I fully empathize with the questions that come along those lines. But there's got to be a mechanism for for burden sharing. I'm told that um, I'm supposed to wrap up. If I could just maybe have two minutes for a last um, question with your indulgence. Um, I, I'm just very curious, uh, Ravi. I mean, given that you know you are essentially a, a central bank, um, a central banker, um, and and in 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 many ways, many of your broad. Um, to me, sweeping proposals for socioeconomic change were a little bit unexpected. I'm just curious as to uh, what values underpinned uh, your thinking when it comes to proposing uh, such a change in architecture for Singapore. Well, as I said, I don't think uh, I've said anything very bold or transformative. Uh, uh, for civil taken servants, together, taken together. Uh, well, the, yes, maybe taken together. The sum together. is greater than yeah. the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Perhaps. Yes. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. What values uh, underpin that kind of thinking? 
y primary value one and, and, and this is where I why I call this whole whole thing the Singapore synthesis is that we want it we want people to be self-reliant as much as possible um, but the paradox is that the government needs to help people become self-reliant. And I think this is where the old-fashioned left and right divide doesn't make any sense. Right? The right says people must be self-reliant. If you take care of them, they'll become dependent, entitlement. Uh, the left says, no, they can't take care of themselves. The state has to take care of them. Take care of them. This is an endless, oversimplified debate. I, over the years, have come to the conclusion that you cannot leave these things entirely to the market. And yet, we have seen so much of how state welfareism has damaged societies, the will to work, the incentive to work, sense of self-esteem and self-worth. So, in a nutshell, the value is about a work-centered social security model, a work-centered inclusion model because work means you help yourself but you need help from the state and from the community and from employers to be able to exercise that self-reliance and you need safety nets if you fall uh, you need mechanisms that help you bounce back because these things happen right so if you ask me i think that's the kind of synthesis of values of self-reliance and public support. Uh, we cannot ignore uh, inequalities in our society. We cannot uh, look the other way. And so we need to come together. And when we say government, we should always remember there's no such thing as government. It's taxpayers. This is why it's all about collective sharing. Taxpayers in Singapore, can we do more to help other Singaporeans become more self-reliant? So if you need to have a re-employment scheme, it needs to be paid for, in part at least by government, which means taxpayers. So it's also about solidarity, which is another strong value that uh, underpins much of what I've said, um, that all parties need to chip in, even whether it's helping migrant workers. You know, we didn't talk very much about that, but all of us need to. It's not just the government. And I'll come back to this theme in my fourth lecture. We we'll look forward to that inspiring lecture. Thanks, everybody, for all your questions. Over to you, Kaisin. Thank you, Ms. Choi and Mr. Menon, for the great discussion. We've come to the end of our today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please scan the QR code on the screen or click the link on the Facebook comment box to submit your feedback. Mr. Ravi Menon's fourth lecture titled An Inspiring Nation will take place next Wednesday on 28 July. Details will be on our website and our Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending this afternoon's lecture. Have a good evening. <laughs>